Jeff Ogilvy survives Wingfoot. Now the moment Aaron Badley has waited. Gary Webb is the five-time Australian Open champion. Golf at its best by one of the best in golf, Peter Thompson. Stand in front of a crowd like this today and win the PGA Championship is pretty special. He's done it at last. Greg Norman. Jones gets his name on the Stonehaven Cup. Leash been to 11 under. Now we've got a new leader, kids. Here is Adam Scott, a life changer. Coming up next, you have unrestricted access to golf across Australia and the world. Thanks to Golf Australia, we're going inside the ropes. G'day everybody, welcome to episode 5 of Inside the Ropes, great to have you with us again the week post the US Open which will be front and centre of course um, through a bunch of the conversations we're going to have John Huggan, renowned golf writer, is getting up very very early in the morning, Scotland time, Mark Hayes to have a chat to us, hello to you great man. G'day Murray, I'm very impressed with Huggy to uh, fall out of the rack full of jet lag after coming back from Wisconsin all the way back to... uh Scotland, so great achievement by him just to even pick up the phone and get, and get in, give us a bit of his love. He's grumpy at the best of times, <laughs> uh, given all the things that have sort of tic-tac on his way to where he's going to be when we get him on the phone. He could say anything. Yeah. Joe Charlton, lovely to have you back since the first one of these. Thanks, Mari. Good to be here again. How are you going? Very, very well. Yeah, busy at work doing some regional development stuff, and but... I love it back here in the studio. So and even more, me. and even more sickening than any of that is that by the time most people are listening to this podcast, Hazy Joe Charlton's going to be in Thailand uh, on a Thai island, which is extremely annoying. Tanning it up, working on my um, or getting rid of my old golf golf tan. So, I'll, are you um, serious? I am Saturday morning, straight off to Bangkok for some street food, followed by Koh Samui. Some magnificent. Yeah. If it's cooked, eat it. Agreed. That's the only rule Agreed. of thumb, isn't it? If it's cooked, eat whatever it is. Don't, don't even ask. Just eat it and it'll be delicious. Um, Huggy's about to join us. Uh, there's a load to talk to him about. You've been picking a fight, though, Hazy. Um, yeah. In fact, before we get stuck into it, we should uh, remind listeners that you can subscribe to the show. If you're listening to it for the first time um, on Apple Podcasts, which the old timers like me used to call uh, iTunes, but it is Apple Podcasts. Or for Android users, download a podcast app through Google Play and get the show delivered to your device every Thursday. Um, you can also check out. I've done a really silly tutorial. If you don't know how to find your uh, podcast icon on your phone, there's a 25-second tut- tutorial. I, I saw that. that. Yeah, it was like Julius Sumner Miller all over again. It was magnificent. <laughs> you know when you speak for 25 seconds and you know words have come out of your mouth but you've got no idea what you actually said? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much what it was. <laughs> and if you actually listen to that explanation, I don't think you're going to be any the wiser for knowing how to do it, but uh, there is an explanation on, on how you can actually um, – Get those um, podcast downloads delivered directly to your phone on a weekly basis. And we've got to thank all the people who have subscribed again this week <laughs> and have left um, messages. The messages have been uh, delightful, to be honest. Yeah, they They've have been. been coming through thick and fast. And we did, we've got to stop this because I think people are leaving <laughs> messages now just so they get their name mentioned. But a bunch of people have left messages on the promise that we'd read out their names. So go on, Hazy, read out their names for us. Uh, Crouchy55 has given us a bit of love. Matt Smythe, Daz7474. You need some work there, Daz, on your handle. Thomas Caldo and the famous Tommy. Oz Trader. Very nice of you to leave us five-star reviews, boys and indeed, girls. Indeed, a lot of you. And because of all of that, we actually peaked, Joe, this week. There's a, um, there's a kind of rankings order. 
I hear top on, ten, was it? Keep going if you don't Top mind. ten on no, the Apple going. Podcast. I learned something new too. I, I didn't realise that it was an iTunes or an Apple Podcast. But <laughs> there thank you, thank you, thank you very much. I've learned something new, and I've just just seen on Face um, FaceTime or Facebook. Sorry, live. You are an old timer, aren't you? Yeah, I know, I'm getting there. Sue O's just joined us. So for the first time, we are live streaming here in the studio, and Sue is there for us. G'day, Sue. We'll speak to you soon. She's watching this as we... She's making sure that this thing is actually real, and it's a legit (laughs) thing, because she's going to be joining us in about half an hour's time. I've got to tell you, Andy, this is so far above my head technologically. It's ridiculous. (laughs) You were talking about the hotspots and stuff before, because you had to post a story before we went... Yeah, well... That was all a charade, I can assure you. Um, Huggy's ready to go, so we won't hold him up for too much longer. But you did, you, you, you're kind of in inverted commas. I said you picked a fight with the Golf Channel's Brandel Chamberlain, of course, long-time tour player. Yeah. Um, and you've written a really interesting column, which we're going to talk to flesh out with Huggy when he joins us. But um, you've, you've sort of taken Brandel to task a little bit. Well, to be fair to Brandel, I actually like most of his stuff, and I find him relatively well-researched. Um, so I, I do give him that credit there. But I nearly fell off my couch, mm-hmm. Andy, the other day when they were discussing the third-round scoring sort of phenomenon at uh, Aaron Hills, highlighted by Justin Thomas's 63, the best US Open score to par ever, came back after the round was finished and analysed it and said, we need courses 8,000-plus yards. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I nearly choked. I, 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 it was one of the most bizarre things, and people have been harassing me saying, you didn't understand what he was saying. He's saying, if we have this technology, we need to do this. Well, let's look at it a bit more logically than that. I mean, we can't just generate land. We can't make new courses just suddenly grow 500 metres. The only course or club that's got remotely the financial capacity to do that is Augusta National. And, you know, it's sprawling halfway across Georgia as it is. So, you know, let's get fair income. It's technology. It's the ball. And we need to talk about that. And I know Huggy's hot to trot. Plus well, the time factor. Sorry to cut in no, there. Like we keep encouraging clubs to think about shorter formats of the yeah. game. Six, nine, 12 hole formats. Spot on, Joe. And here we are trying to lengthen courses, which is going to add X amount of time. Like it's, it's just not feasible from a participation point of view. Yeah, and that's what, that was a key thing. I mean, we, we don't want bifurcation in some respects. We want you know golf to be sort of what it is for everyone across the board. But it's getting to the point with the technology where that's becoming impossible. Mm. And, and it's not just that I'm not just talking just pure at an elite major championship level. I'm talking right down to club level. Like oh, Joe, course, it, it, this sprawl for land is just absurd. We no one can afford it. We can't justify what we've got. So, and, and new clubs feel the pressure. They do feel the pressure if they if they have any sort of aspiration to be a championship layout. They do feel the pressure when they're redesigning a new course. And I'm a member of one at the moment that is sort of grappling with this at the moment. I think, even though they haven't necessarily stated that, I think they are grappling with that. And it's. You got to remember who you can who you're feeding here. The, the members are your constituents. Absolutely, you they're, they're the most important people in golf. Not the pros, not the no. touring pros. I mean, they make the game and they're the face of the game. But without the guys and girls at club level, we're, we're cactus. And I just before we go to Huggy, yep. the, the, a case in point here is the Warringah Country or Warringah Golf Club in Northern Sydney. Mm. In a huge battle to keep its 18 holes, uh, the council there, Warringah Council, wants to get rid of a fair bit of turf and give it to other sports and other development projects. Imagine telling Warringah Golf Club that we need to expand you know, a few extra holes just to make sure the balls can fly to where they need to fly these days. I mean, it would make them sick. It would make them sick. If you're about to lose half of your course that you've been a member of for 40 years... It's gut-wrenching. It, it is, and it's and there's an absurdity in the whole conversation. And John Huggan has been good enough to take our call. It's very, very early uh, over there in Scotland. And the world's one of the world's great rock, golf writers and commentators and a friend to everybody here at Inside the Ropes has been good enough to join us. Hello, Huggy. Hello there. How are we? 
Are you doing well? We're going okay. You've heard a lot of that, I suspect. I don't know how long you've been on the line for, but you've heard most of that. And I suspect you've probably heard about Brandel Chamberlain's call that courses need to be 8,000 metres and beyond to um, test these players who are, you know, turning it up at the elite level. Um, I reckon you've probably got many and varied responses to that, but in a nutshell, how do you respond to that? Well, well, based on last week, I mean, uh, Hazy's column was was terrific. Um, I agreed with with every word of it. That uh, last last week we had a course that was almost eight thousand yards, and and it kind of revealed the the dirty little secret that goes on in in top level professional golf, and that most of the time these guys are not hitting drivers anymore. They're, They're only hitting their three woods. And last week on a course that was so long and so wide. That they were able to hit the drivers. We had the situation whereby at the halfway point, 116 members of the field were averaging over 300 yards off the tee. And after the cut was made, I think 68 guys made the cut, and 50 of them were averaging over 300. And we had situations where Dustin Johnson, who missed the cut, he hit it over the back on a 676-yard par 5, the 18th. And then we had the, you know, <clears throat> the famous one on the last hole on Sunday where Brick Brooks Kepka hit his three wood off the tee, three hundred and seventy nine <laughs> yards. It's uh, as I say, if, if you let these guys hit driver, it's going to be close to four hundred yards before we know where we are. I love it when you reveal dirty little secrets, Huggy. It sort of just warms my heart. Mate, uh, we obviously didn't get the chance to go to, to Erin Hills, but it's in rural rural Wisconsin. I shouldn't say that too early in the morning. But, uh, you know, it's on a sprawling piece of glaciated land that's not available to very many uh, potential golf courses or, you know, that, that sort of land available to any existing golf courses. When you hear people say, we need to build longer courses and you compare it to Erin Hills and what you just saw firsthand there, how, how maniacal is it to, to, I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but how maniacal is it to suggest that other clubs could grab that much land and make it, make it happen? Well, it's, it's nonsense. I mean, you know, as you've pointed out, the, uh, it's just crazy to even think that we could do that. I mean, you, you touched on bifurcation there just before I came on, but we've actually got bifurcation right now. I mean, the, the game that the professionals play and the game that you and I play has never been more different. And that's been created by the RNA and the USGA doing basically nothing about the technology. I mean, they'll claim that the the averages of you know the distance is not getting any greater than it was back in 2002 when they came out with a famous joint statement of principles. But that that's nothing more than an insult to our intelligence these days. I mean, the, they they look us in the eye and tell us that the, the guys are not in any further. But then, as I just pointed out, if you give them a golf course like last week. They're hitting miles. They're hitting 350 yards off the tee regularly I mean, with the drivers and just about as far with the three woods. I mean, they're, they're now at the point on the tour where the, the distances that you read week to week on the PGA Tour and the European Tour, that's them hitting most of the time the three woods. It's not even the drivers. It's, it's completely out of control. What is the answer? Is it, is it back to hickory clubs? <laughs> well, some some people have accused me of, of uh, actually suggesting that, but no, I, w- I wouldn't quite go that far. I mean, the, the, the solution is, or the easy solution is obvious. We need to do something about how far these guys can hit the golf ball. I mean, you, we can get into the size of the driver heads and all the rest of it, but that's expensive for the uh, the average guy who's already purchased his $400 or whatever it is for the driver these days. <clears throat> the easy fix is, is obviously the golf ball. If you knock... Um, 
cards or something off it for the pros. I don't think we would even notice, to be honest. I mean, we don't have the... The average guy doesn't have the swing speed that it makes any difference if he switched the ball. And then, of course, I, get, I always get people asking me when I say these things, where do we go back to? Well, to me, the, the answer is obvious. We go back to the point where the RNA started messing around with the old courses in Andrews and making it longer and building new tees and having new tees off the golf course. That is that should be the one course in the world that should be a you know a monument, an untouched monument forever, so that we can compare the, the modern players with the guys in the past. It's getting more and more difficult to do that. That's one thing that we're losing with all this distance nonsense. So that, to me, is the obvious solution. We go back to probably somewhere in the mid-90s with the old course and get the guys hitting drivers and playing that course as the, way, the way it's supposed to be played and not the way that it is now where we've got the situation where uh, if you have the prevailing wind on the old course at an open championship, the last hole it should be a par four, it's actually a long par three. So that's the situation where we're at right now. Huggy, uh, everything to fix here is going to come at a cost in, in some respects, um, but it's still relatively simple and, and cheap to fix now. We've taken a few steps along a path. If we don't start doing it, do you believe that it would get you know out of hand and the fix will become progressively more difficult? And I bring in my column, I mentioned the America's Cup, which to me has become the most farcical sporting event in the world, bearing absolutely no yeah. resemblance to sailing whatsoever. I may as well just put a, a, a power boat on the on the water these days. I know we're not to that stage, but is that the sort of progression we're heading down? Well, the strange thing is, if you, if you look at other sports, with golf, I think, is probably the only sport I can think of where we've actually protected the equipment at the expense of the venues. Other sports have done exactly the opposite. I mean, baseball in America... They, they don't let them use the, the metal bats because if they did, the, the top guys would be hitting out of the ground every time. And in tennis, they slowed the ball down, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago because it, it, certainly at Wimbledon, it was getting ridiculous. It was all just two-point, uh, two, two-hit rallies. I mean, they would serve and maybe the, the ball would come back, maybe it wouldn't. But golf has done exactly the opposite. We, we've spent all our money, you know, protecting the, the equipment uh, and the expense of the venues. We're now... We're now the top guys cannot play these old great these great old courses. I mean, the U.S. Open is going to a succession of uh, wonderful old courses in the next ten years, and, I, and I'm not sure that the original de- intent of the uh, any of the designers of these places is going to be able is going to hold up. So, you know, Shinnecock Hills next year. We all know what happened there the last time the U.S. Open was played. There it was a complete farce. So I'm worried that the, the only way that they're going to be able to keep the scores up. In a sort of normal range, if you like, in inverted commas, is by going long grass everywhere. They certainly did that at, um, at Merion in 2014 or 13 when Justin Rose won. I mean, the, the original intent of the designer there was completely lost because all the places where you were supposed to hit the ball to get the best angle into the, the greens was covered in long grass. So everybody ended up playing the holes in exactly the same way, which is another consequence of all this nonsense is that they grow the rough and the fairways get so narrow that any semblance of strategy is completely lost. It just becomes a penal game where if you miss, you pitch out and you play on from there. It's, it's all nonsense, really. And that's what I was going to ask you about, Huggy. I think part of this debate, does it have to come down to a bit of course design and course setup? Mike Davis said in the week leading up to the US Open that he said that he wanted a course setup that tests every aspect of the game. In your view, did he achieve that? Well, no. I mean, uh, the, 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 
I think Brooks Kepka announced somewhere during the championship that he hadn't hit more than a seven iron <laughs> to any of the par fours. I mean, or even the par fives. I'm not even sure about that. But the the, the point is, he hadn't hit that. He hadn't hit a long iron all week, and uh, that is, is completely lost at the top level. These guys, they don't need their long irons. They could probably knock their clubs down to about ten in the bag and, and get away with it. If, uh, and the other thing is the the hybrids. I, I played. Um, at the end of last year, I was lucky enough to be. I played with Mike Clayton and Sue O and myself played with uh, Nicholas Kosarts in the Pro Am at the World Cup at Kingston Heath. I actually wrote a column about this in, in Golf Australia magazine, and it was a depressing experience <laughs> because not only did Nicholas Kosarts play a completely different golf course, it was basically pitch and putt for him compared with the one that the rest of us were playing. We got in a par three hole where. I think Mike and I both hit four irons, and, and Nicholas Kosar smashed this eight iron towards the green. And I said to him, well, drop another ball and see if you can hit a, a six iron. It was slightly into left to right wind, <clears throat> and just see if you can hit a little draw and hold it up against the wind and play that shot. Now, he can do that. He's an extremely talented guy, but the ball wouldn't let him do it. He couldn't hit anything other than an absolutely straight shot. Because as hard as he tried, he was almost trying to snap hook it. And still couldn't get the ball to hold up. It's you know the art of shot making <clears throat> has been almost completely lost at the top level, and it's just a case of them hitting straight shots all the time. I mean, we could go on and on about this. I mean, I'm, I'm getting depressed listening to myself. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's an issue. I, I, let me just ask you the devil's advocate question, John. D- do you find it as much as it is a grotesque? To um, you know, given so many of the points that you've raised already, is there anything about it that you find exhilarating? Well, the, the people say that um, you know the average punter goes to the tournament and he loves to see the the, the the long drive. Now that that is certainly true, but I'm not sure if you and I stand behind a tee at a golf tournament whether you can uh, you and I could tell the difference between a 290 yard drive and a 350 yard drive. Mm. You know, they're going to look just as impressive. So I don't think that is, that aspect of the game is going to be lost if we if we cut the ball back. But um, yeah, I mean, do you think you could tell the difference? Well, I don't know. I, it, you sort of go back to the Norman days when I was a kid and you followed him around, you know, like Royal Melbourne, and he'd cut corners where other guys were laying up, and he was using you know the standard ball and a persimmon head driver. Um, I think it was still the wooden head drivers back in those days. I'm pretty sure it was, and so, yeah. so he was just a freak of nature. He he could do something that, um, you know, other players couldn't do. And I kind of wonder, not challenging any of the points that any of you guys have raised because they're all unbelievably valid. But I always think I just wonder whether the conditioning and the athletic um, ability of some of these guys, like you see, you know, the way John Dustin Johnson kind of rips it. Or you just wonder whether he will still have an ex- an extreme advantage over you know, 75% of the field because of the talk that he generates and the club head speed he generates and, you know, the shoulder turn he generates, all those things that he can do that a lot of people can't. I, I wonder whether you're still going to get these kind of freaks of nature anyway. Well, there's two points I'd make about that. Um, have you seen film of Arnold Palmer back in the day? Yeah, yeah. Do you really think that Dustin Johnson is a better athlete now than Arnold Palmer was at the top of his game? There's well, no difference. I mean, Arnold Palmer was just as good an athlete as Dustin Johnson, to my mind. I mean, he was a fantastic-looking guy. I mean, well-built, and he smashed it. Yeah, but they still run faster now, and they jump higher, uh, by and large, and they throw things further 
in 2017 than they did back in 1965. Like, yeah, it's, well, it's more of them. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and they've just got and better. They've got better things to help them get in shape. I'm not saying that Palmer wasn't as good a natural athlete as a guy like Justin Thomas or um, or, or Dustin Johnson, but the facilities that they have at their disposal and the training aids and the support staff and the sports science and the biomechanics, all those things that, you know, that Arnold never had access to, these guys do. Well, you're, you're right, Brian, and I think that's, con- that's contributed to the fact that there's a lot more of them, proper athletes, if you like. Mm. And there's certainly athletes more than the, most of them were back in the day. But, but here's the thing, that, <clears throat> the other point I was going to make about when you raised uh, Greg Norman, He's a perfect example of somebody who was the best player in the world for, for quite a period of his career. And he largely, or a good part of why he was able to to separate himself from his competition was the fact that he was such a magnificent driver of the mm. ball. The same with Ian Woosnam and the, and the same with Nick Price. Those guys, part of their, they were all number one in the world at a time when the driving made a difference. Now, it's, it's less significant because... The art of driving at the top level has largely been lost. All these guys are, are great drivers. The, the drivers they use now <clears throat> are so forgiving that they can all swing at close to 100% and just smash the ball. Whereas back in the day, as you said, with the, the latter balls and, and persimmon clubs, if you swung at 100% and you didn't catch it right off the middle, it was going to be off the charts somewhere. You were going to lose your ball, maybe. Mm. Now that that's the, the, you can hit the ball almost anywhere on the club face, and, and get it out there somewhere, especially if you've got the, the technique that these guys at the top level have. So that is one of the, another great sadness for me is that is the art of the driving has been lost at the top level. And further to that, mm. Huggy, and I want to take you to task, Gampion, here, Andy. Mm. The, what Huggy referred to before with Nick Colsart's uh, not having, not being able to hit the high draw there and hold it against the wind, the ball just does not spin mm. as, it, as nearly as much. The spin rates are just so far down on what they used to be. It's brilliant technology, and we applaud all the companies for getting through this technology. But if the ball was to actually spin again, and Dustin Johnson reached down and tried to hit a 370-yard drive, mm. and he made a hint of an error, yeah. it's not going to miss by five yards. It's going to miss by 35 yards. And it'll make him think twice about doing it, and I, you know that's what we need. We so, don't we don't want people to stand on the tee thinking I can I can make a horrendous error here and still just pitch it out to the front of the green and chip and putt for a birdie. I agree with that. So a question to all of you: and You go first, John. Should we have? Do we need a pro ball and do we need a club handicappers ball? I mean, he, this is not an un, this is not an unprecedented, unprecedented conversation that's taken place in the past, but. You, you try and sell you try and sell that to a twelve handicapper or a sixteen handicapper somewhere anywhere in the world and say you can't use that ball anymore. You're going to use a ball now that is so more so much more penal that every time you hit a bad shot, which is what most of us do most of the time, uh, you're going to be in massive trouble. I mean, how, how will that how will that sell go down to the club players all over the world? Well, I, I'm not proposing. I don't think anybody is that the club player that you and I should. You'd not be using the ball that we're using right now. Hmm. That's exactly what we should be using because it's, it's, it's as you just pointed out, it's, it's so forgiving. It doesn't go sideways like it, like the balls used to do. That's the ball that you and I should be playing with, hmm. but that's not the ball that somebody with a, a you know a great athlete that you just pointed out or with a great technique. I mean, they don't need that. They, they need to be challenged a bit more. And as Hazy says, that the, the one of the another great tragedy of this whole nonsense is that the ball, not because it doesn't go sideways, when was the last time, you know, Robert Watson might be the only you know, the 
example in the modern game where he actually shaped shots, and even he, you know, he seems to be struggling with that now. But when, when was the last time you saw somebody out there playing golf like Seve Ballesteros or Lee Trevino? I mean, it's now become. I mean, I, my, my view is that golf, at its very best, is an art. It's not a science. But we're so far down the road now of making it a science that we're losing the art, the artistic part of the game. And to me, I grew up watching guys like Trevino and Seve and was drawn to the game because of those guys. And again, we're, we're losing all that. And it's, it, to me, it's, it's such a great shame. Yeah, I, I agree with you totally there. I think... At the elite end, it's become a really one-dimensional sort of sort of game. But the catch is, when we're trying to grow participation, and I'll come from that angle, we need to try and make the game a little bit easier. And p- potentially the technology has achieved that, uh, but maybe now we do need to think about handicapping that at a, at a point because we need to encourage growth, but we also don't want to lose the art of, of the game. And for my what it's worth, Andy, I, I'm... In theory, I'm against bifurcation, but in practice here, it's the only way we can get through this. And I think it should extend not only to the ball, but back to uh, I, I don't I don't want uh, anchored putters at any by any means. Don't get me wrong here, but I think people should be allowed to to pretty much do what they want if they're playing in handicap competitions, because after a while, the handicap will take care of whatever advantage you have anyhow. Mm-hmm. I, at elite level, there's no I've got no love at all for anything anything to do with anchoring. But if it's if you've got the yips and you you know you're off twenty three at uh, you know Dubbo, I, then I don't care what you're using. Yeah, you know yeah. the handicap will sort you out. So I, I'm you know I think bifurcation has arrived. In my mind, it's time. Huggy, some of the numbers coming out of Erin Hills, you know, preempt and make us have these sorts of conversations. And we're delighted that you've got up early in the morning to be part of the conversation with us. Can I just ask you one on a slight, well, on an unrelated topic before we let you go? I was going to get to it later on, but um, now that you're here. Danny Willett withdraws um, after the opening round with an 81. Um, he seems to be in you know, all sorts of strife at the moment with his back, and I don't know whether there are issues outside of that. He's certainly challenging anyone who suggests that there might be. We know about the caddy issue you know, four or five weeks ago. Um, you're, a lot, you're a lot closer to the European players than we are. Where's, where's Danny Willett at at the moment, John? Well, he's, as you pointed out, I mean, he seems to be a little bit lost. Um, his, the, the back thing is, is an ongoing issue. That's, all, that's been with him his whole, almost his whole life. He seems to have, a, you know, just a, there's nothing much they can do about it. He's always, he's always just got to, to watch what he does with his back. But uh, clearly, mentally, he's, he's lost an incredible level of confidence. Um, I spoke to a couple of guys who worked with him, his agents, last week, and they said that he's He's working harder now than he's ever worked, which is maybe not the right approach. Mm. But um, aside from the back thing, um, he's certainly not the player he was um, a year ago. I've always been a big fan of Danny Willett's game. Um, I like that early set thing that he does in, the, in his backswing, and then basically all you have to do is turn. I mean, that, that kind of makes sense to me. It seems quite simple. So from that aspect, that hasn't changed. And I watched him on the range last week before he played his, his opening round. And he was killing it on the range. So um, the 81 game was a bit of a shock to me. Um, but obviously the, the problem is confidence more than anything. And then add that to the, the physical aspect of his back. Um, but um, I don't know. He's, got, he's, he's gone down a long way. <clears throat> he's slipping outside. He's dropping like a stone <clears throat> Excuse me, in the, in the world rankings. And I'm not sure that uh, maybe the best thing for Danny Willett might be two or three months away from the game just to... Have a break. He's got a, a 
a little baby at home and another one on the way. So um, he's got other things to worry about in his life, and maybe that maybe that's where he should be right now. You know. Huggy, a 180-degree turn here. We're, we're blessed with Joe Charlton's presence, and I believe you you and her you know, struck up a very cordial friendship on the links of uh, Fife. Is, is that right? I mean, Joe, when we told Joe that you were coming on last night, she just smiled ear to ear. It was incredible, the love she had for you. I said you're a very brave man letting me on the links at, at Muirfield. Very, very brave. Ahead of your time. Well, well, the be- yeah, the best aspect of that for me was that I think – were you the only girl in that group that was there? Yes, yes. Yes, well, that was the great irony for of me. For me, was uh, the fact that I was able to take the only girl in the group to play at Muirfield, which um, wasn't the, the norm at the time. I think all the, all the boys must have been a bit jealous. But, they yeah, was they were super jealous changed. at the time. I was saying, yeah, I think it was six boys. Now, so. but, yeah, you were, I, I was pleased. I was able to do that. <laughs> hey, Huggy. Hopefully, it won't be the last time we hear your voice. Um, on this podcast, hopefully next time you're in a more time-friendly part of the world and we don't ask you to get up at uh, one thirty in the morning to have a chat to us. We oh, really... no, this, this, was, this was fine. Jet lag's a wonderful thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, mate. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Huggy. Thanks, Huggy. No problem. Nice to speak to you. John Huggin joining us on Inside the Ropes. Hi, this is Sherelle McMahon. Swing Fit is the fun, healthy, social way for women to get started in golf. You'll learn the basics of the golf swing and how to putt over a six-week program and get your whole body moving through yoga and Pilates style exercises. You don't need any golf knowledge or equipment. Simply turn up in comfy clothing and get started. You'll be surrounded by like-minded people and receive constant support. So get outdoors, meet new friends and learn a sport that you can play for the rest of your life. To find a program near you, visit swingfit.com.au. Walking the fairways and the greens with the Aussie stars at home and away. Golf Australia's Inside the Ropes. Uh, great to have John Huggin talking US Open with us. Um, the way the tournament played out, the winner was pretty emphatic in the end. I mean, it was, uh, you say what you like about how far he hits the ball, but in the end, the the, the power, the effortless power that he seemed to be generating was, it was, it was pretty awesome. He's phenomenal, and what I really like, as opposed to our good friend Grayson Murray, who's you know going to become a hot topic a on this uh, podcast over the months ahead. But we're not going to talk about what he wrote this week. No, we're not. We're no, definitely not. not that, no. no, but you know, he, he's actually taken his trade to other parts of the world to hone it. And yep, spot you know, we can say what we want about power. That's irrelevant. He was the best player there for the week. Uh, he had a couple of contenders pretty late on. Who you know, he fought off. Uh, I thought he was. Absolutely stunning in the back nine holes. And I heard a pretty revealing thing with Tim Roseford afterwards who said what he's been going through mentally with his coaches is that he gets himself into a position. And for the last three or four years on the back nine with you know nine to play of the 72, he's thought about where he is and tightened up and not started. He's defending his position. This time he's got there and gone, right, I need birdies. I need to make this happen. And the par putt that he rammed in on 13 was clearly the kickstart of what happened on 14, 15, and 16. And that, that's a phenomenal achievement to make those birdies. Now, beautiful putts, the perfect holding speed, maybe a bit of an over. Dead center. Dead center the yeah. in the US Open. And he's he's had Matsuyama pushing. He's had Harmon, who wouldn't go away. He's had Fowler, who was hanging around. And he's just gone, get out of my way. Mm. And, I, and I full credit to him because he's actually won it. Uh, with a great score, and he was the best player of the week. And I don't care what people say about even Parno. We've had this battle the last few weeks, but that was just great golf. Really tremendous golf. Some of the best we've seen in a major for a while. 
His ability to not let the moment get on top of him, Joe, and you've played, you know, elite level amateur golf. Not a US Open. No, not a US Open. But but, but you've been in that much more than Hazy and I have ever been in. We've been, I'm about to shoot par here for a Wednesday afternoon. I've got to make a five up the last to get 36 points on the board here. But that's a pressure that all of them, too, but not in a different, multiple stratospheres away from what Brooks Kapka was dealing with. To stay in the moment the way he did, not let it get too big, that was unbelievably impressive. Yeah, totally. Completely clutch. And I suppose it's old saying that I used to always say to myself, keep it simple, stupid, mm. um, and really just focus on that moment, that second, that that part, that iron shot and the like. And he just nailed that bit by bit by bit. And the momentum built yep. and the confidence obviously grew at the latter end of that, that last um, nine holes. And he, he just... He rose to the rose to the top. So what do we say, you know, about the Australian wash up? Only one makes the cut, um, and there was some, you know, there was some train wrecks along the way. What, what do we say about? Well, what? I actually thought Wade Wade Ormsby and Nick Flanagan in particular put in reasonably solid yep. efforts and yep. paid the price for a couple of holes. But I think that if they could go around again at the next major championship, I think they'd both put in a better achievement again and maybe even make the cut. I thought they were pretty impressive mm. given what the odds they were confronting. Could you believe what Jason Day was doing in the first round? No, and, and you know it's 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 super disappointing uh, on a course that realistically he's got the same tools as Brooks Kepka mm. or, or Dustin Johnson, and and uh, say what you want about uh, his back or whatever, that was just a flat flat performance. Um, hopefully he's um, got the capacity to turn it around. But I think it's almost like a you know football or whatever code you follow around Australia here. If you haven't got that preseason in under your belt, it's starting to look like it's a, mm. you know not a waste of a season because he's still got plenty of time to do it. But he, he's he's coming from behind the eight ball in my opinion. That was for him to make a couple of triple bogeys on a course that really should suit him down to the ground was uh, really disheartening. He seemed to find if you can you know we've all played rounds of golf where you can find bad luck. It just it just follows you. You know, you get buried in the face of bunkers and you get unplayable lies and whatever. It did seem that there were, I don't know how many occasions, but probably three or four times in that round where he just seemed to be in shocking, like it was a bad shot he played, but they were in, they ended up in awful positions. Everything that kind of could go wrong for him seemed to go wrong for him in that opening round. He's, Am I cutting him too much slack by saying that? Uh, a little. I, th- I think on holes like the fourth and the first round where he had his first triple bogey, I mean, the ball was actually on the green. His approach, his second to the par four, mm. was on the green for quite a long time um, and before it trickled down the hill. But we've all seen, and this is what I admire as a, as a mug watching the pros and, and elite-level players like yourself, Joe, is you once you've made a mistake, you don't compound it. And by trying to play two or three flop shots from yeah. ankle-deep rough... Uh, you've just got to you've just got to take that out of your game once, maybe, but don't do it twice or three times. And you know that's to me the biggest flaw of his game. There, if he has a bogey, mentally he's still in the game. A triple's really hard, and then your second triple, it's over. Yeah, totally. Course management. I think that's what we what you're hitting hitting there, Hazy. And sometimes your ego might say one thing, but common sense is another thing. Mm. So but potentially he could have saved himself and and made the cut and. And it would have been a different story for him. Yeah. And Adam Scott, to me, Andy, was a, another one who was flat. Um, it, realistically, his first round, 72, he's even past 72, flattered him. Because for three and a half hours, he was toast. But mm. he made four or uh, two birdies and an eagle to sort of get back in a position. And then just drifted on the Friday. It was I don't know what you thought of it, but I thought it was, again, a pretty disappointing show. Well, I thought what he was seven off the after the opening round, he was seven back. And the four under through the last five, I thought... 
he could go on and win this, and mm. he'll look back at those last five holes, and he'll say that was when I won the championship because I could have anything could happen. I could have gone two or three the other way and been you know, eleven or twelve and cooked. Mm. But he sort of played himself. He didn't play himself out of the tournament at the end of that opening round. And you were just watching the body language of him. I thought, oh, he's he's back in this. You know, you could see that he was happy and comfortable and. He was enjoying, you know, the yeah. fight back, and you thought, "Well, this is a great springboard to take into the second round." I thought, I can't remember what the timelines were, but I think he played early the second round, so most of us were probably asleep over here. And I was fully expecting to wake up and see a sixty-seven, sixty-eight alongside Adam Scott's name. He'd be two or three under, four under, and be within three or four at the halfway mark and look out because his form's been. You know, it's been encouraging enough to suggest that there's something mm. big on the horizon, I reckon, without necessarily winning anything recently. And I was really disappointed when I woke up and saw the 75 alongside his name and miscut after that second round. It sort of, it kind of came a bit out of, bit out of left field. Yeah, and and to me again, it's a course that should suit him in theory. The 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 three of the four par fives, depending on the wind, are probably within reach to him. Uh, or at least to get it around the fringe and mm. get an up and down. So I don't know whether he just uh, couldn't take advantage of those because clearly he didn't play them as well as the people like Kepka and Matsuyama, um, or whether his putting is at such a low ebb confidence-wise because mm. he seems to be striking the ball well and his new coach, Matt Ballard, has um, you know, got him on track there. I think he's actually you know striking it as well as he ever has. But uh, the scores just aren't coming, and again, we hope that sort of turns around quickly. Look, look into the crystal ball before we get to you and Porter. Look into the crystal ball. Where's Rory at? What, what, what's the rest of the Rory McIlroy? He's not yet thirty, is he? Is he still yet to turn thirty, McIlroy? I think he might be twenty-nine. At a guess, I should have checked that before he came on. He's done what he's done, and he's made millions and millions of dollars out of this game, and already had multiple major championship success. But he misses the cut. You know, a tournament that probably should should have suited him again. Um, where's Where's McElroy at just at the moment? Do you think? I'll just throw another little interesting fact. It was actually the first U.S. Open since 1985 that the three favourites in Johnson, McElroy, and Day missed the cut. So quite extraordinary that the pre-tournament favourites, mm. none of them. So Rory, I mean, he's in good company there. Obviously missing the cut. Um, in a major um, since 1985. Yeah, it was incredible. I don't, to, your, to your point, Andy, I, um, he's come out overnight and revealed that you know he's been such a he was a little skinny dude for such a long time, and he's been pumping weights fiercely um, for years now, and and his body shapes remarkably changed over that period. But he's come out overnight and actually said, you know, I haven't been able to lift a weight with my injuries this year, mm. so it, it's clearly hampered him. I, I, I'm don't think he's spent force at all, but I do think you know might even come to the point where he has to just uh, hang him up, uh, which is a really hard thing to say when you're just starting now to get into the grind of the not the grind but the the pleasurable part of the season mm. with the majors ahead of you. You've just had one, another couple coming up, and you know he'd be thinking right now, this is my chance to make a. And in reality, maybe it's better for him to rest and get mm. better uh, and come back in 2018 fully fit and raring to go again. Weights and golf. I know they're much better now at knowing you know, what sort of specific routines and gym sessions and workouts and weights you need to do to get yourself right. But, you know, it's a, there's something delicate about this, I reckon. The, goal, or the pressure that the golf swing puts on the body and what is required from a physical preparation perspective, I reckon you've got to get that. You better get that right. Yeah, no, no doubt. I think stronger people 
do it better, uh, but to a point. Mm. And I think like Tiger Woods is obviously the perfect example of that, and perhaps Rory is now will we'll, we'll follow his progress for the next um, six months. But, yeah, it's a, it's a balancing act. Your, your mm. body is your greatest asset, mm. and there is probably no fast rule. Um, every Everyone's different. We can ask Sue. I'm sure her preparation's totally different to what Rory's would be, and that might be – you know, really in- interesting debate for us to have. And he's 28, Andy. He's 28. 28. So, I mean, he's got a lot of years ahead of him here. So he is a pup. That's a uh, very good age. I, I believe young Miss Charlton here might be 28 too, Andy. So Don't look a day over 24, Joe. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, he, he's um, clearly got a lot of time ahead of him. Yeah. So it might be that he needs to uh, just put it back a gear maybe mm. for a little while and get it right because Joe says if you have, without that body you can't compete on the two of these days. And Andy, just before we finish up with Rory McIlroy, a bit of a classic uh, Twitter feud during the week with the inimitable, I'll say that because that's the nicest thing I could say, Steve Elkington, uh, who's I think becoming more renowned for tweets rather than yes. his golfing exploits <laughs> yes, these days, yes. which is sad, but it's true. And I'm not sure what he sort of consumes there in Texas these days to make these <laughs> tweets possible, but... He's reached out to Rory in a very, uh, well, unscientific manner, let's say, and he said, Rory is so bored playing golf. Without Tiger, the threshold is probably four majors and 100 mil in the bank, which is, I mean, nonsense as it is, but Rory, who's magnificent on social media, doesn't mind giving someone a clip and straightening them up, straight back at him, more like 200 mils, straight back to Elk. Not bad for a bored, in inverted commas, 28-year-old, and plenty more where that came from. And he's actually tweeted out a picture a picture of his own Wikipedia page <laughs> with all the results right. that he's had with his wins and everything. And, you know, there was such tremendous uh, outpouring of support for him there and just another canning of elk. Well, social media can be, as we've seen in golf this week, Hazy and Joe, social media for golfers can be a fantastic thing and it can be a not-so-fantastic thing. And we're not going to discuss the content of Grayson Murray's social media contributions <laughs> this week. But if you want to go and find out for yourself, um, you can find out what Grayson Murray's been up to on social media this week. And, uh, yeah, as I said, it can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. I, I, I'm getting to the point. Like, I, I'm happy, like, if, for example, if uh, Brandel Chamblee would have wanted to come on with this, I'd love it. But I'd be getting to the point of <laughs> we'd have to change the rating of the show if Grayson Murray ever deigned to come on with us. <laughs> I think we would have to get a few different categories on the iTunes store or the what is it the Apple Podcast Store these days. Apologies, the, the Apple the Podcast Go-Go. Store if you don't mind. Yeah. yeah, that's the one. That's the one. The Golf Australia website is now the place to go to look up your handicap and so much more. Whether you're out and about on your phone or in the office trying to avoid work, just go to golf.org.au and punch a golf link number into the box at the top of the homepage. Who knows? Maybe that last round was just good enough to put you in single figures. While you're on the site, check out the daily golf results at your club, view our course index for up-to-date ratings, read the latest golf news from home and abroad, listen to Australian golf podcasts and interviews, and watch video tournament highlights or tips to improve your game. It's everything a golf tragic could want. Visit golf.org.au today. The home of Australian golf. Walking the fairways and the greens with the Aussie stars at home and away. Golf Australia's Inside the Ropes. There's a lot of other golf being played around the world at the moment and there's a lot to look forward to, um, particularly on the ladies' side of the game. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't know how important it is for a young professional player to bank an $85,000 cheque, but I would imagine that when you do that at your most recent 
professional start, Joe, Hazy and I. At the age of 21. At the age of 21. I imagine that must give you an enormous confidence boost. And that's exactly what Suo did, and she's turning it up in Arkansas. I always want to say Arkansas when I see it, but I'll say Arkansas, and she's been good enough to join us inside the ropes. G'day, Sue. Thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, yeah, no problem. Good to talk back to people back home. How? Be honest with us. After I, I know where the money's gone through to your account, you, you and I don't feel like it's unseemly talking to a professional golfer about money they earn because that's what you're in it for. You're in to win championships, and you're in it to make money. Yeah. Has the money gone through to your bank account yet? I don't think so, but I've like paid everybody that I need to pay from that week. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I ask that question is because if eighty five large jumped into my bank account, I'd be just looking at it, or I'd be for every down minute I had, I'd be going, just let me just go on the ComBank app and have a look. Oh, doesn't that look nice? Yeah, but like people don't understand that, like. What you see on the money list is, like, not what gets banked into your account. It's kind of like, you know, they take a bit out, and then you pay people, and then you kind of do, like, I don't know, expenses, and it's not really, like, the same amount of dollars that you actually see on the um, money list. Well, that is a bit of a a reality check. I'm happy with how I played. I bet you were. I bet you were, that's right. But that is a bit of a reality check, though, for us back at home. Run us through, like, what... What is the, you know, week in, week out sort of, what does it look like being a, to a professional? Um, well, I think it's very different for people from outside of the U.S., um, whereas, like, just Americans playing at home because, firstly, they if they have a week off, then they can just go home and it's really home for them. But, like, for me, it's, like, a week off. And I've set, uh, I've been living in Dallas for a year now. Um, but it's kind of, like, not really a home home for me yet. I'm trying to make it a little more homey. But it's tough when you're only there, like, 18 weeks of the year and traveling for um, 25 to 28 weeks of the year. And then whatever's left is... I'm at home and just seeing friends. So, have you got um, a support a crew different. with you, Sue? Have you got a support, you know, team, coach? How often do you see him? Um, anyone travelling with you week on week? Uh, no, just uh, yeah. Mum's been travelling for a little bit, but um, Cameron, I've been working. He's my coach, Cameron McCormick, and he's been. Um, He's, he's set in Dallas. That's probably why. That's the main reason why I'm in Dallas. Um, like he comes to the majors, um, and then I just talk to him frequently. I just send him videos and just check in with him a lot. So, Sue, I wanted to ask you about Cam, actually. So, you, I mean, while we were all... Uh, tucking into our Christmas roasts last year, you were basically on the plane and back to Dallas and trying to grind out something pretty important for your golf swing, I believe. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I only spent like two weeks back home before I went back to Dallas, and um, it was it was cold. It was really really cold, and it snowed. Um, and the day it snowed, I saw Cameron at eight o'clock in the morning, and I don't know if anybody else has experienced this, but you can really feel your toes like just <laughs> going numb. 
Um, and the heater was on at 90, like 92 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and it's, and that's not enough. Like when you're putting, it's okay because it was like kind of indoors facility. But when you hit balls, like once the shutter goes up, it's like freezing. So that's and 34 degrees. That People would be croaking in England. <laughs> well, but um, no, it was good. I, I got a lot of work done and. I needed to do some work on my swing, um, and just I, I, I thought if I put in a lot of work at the, in the off season, um, it would be a lot easier to um, make any changes or adjustments when I was playing this season. So that's why I went over, and it was worth it. And you obviously feel right now, having come off a fourth in. Uh at the Miser Classic there, that you, that's all starting to pay off now. Like, it's it's been w- worth the effort that you put into it and, the you know, the, the perhaps downtime from Christmas until now in terms of results. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was only one week. It's actually been kind of a slow start for me. Um, after Australia, where I played well, mm. um, and I really wanted to play well in Australia, <clears throat> and I played well there, and then it kind of just uh, went a bit flat and... Um, but you know, just I, I didn't feel like it was too far away, but just couldn't put a good tournament together. And you know, and last week I did, and with like three majors coming up in the next five weeks, um, hopefully I'll just keep the streak going. So, so, so you talk about uh, you know the tech, the technical aspects of changing a swing, and you want to get that kind of ingrained as quickly as you possibly can. Are you at the point now where when you're standing over, you know, a ball and you're about to play a shot, that your head is clear? You're not you're not thinking about the mechanics. You're not thinking about, you know, where things are supposed to be and how it's supposed to feel. Are you, are you at that stage with this kind of new swing of yours now? Um, yeah, you try and be in that state, like, you know, no matter where your technique is, I think. Um but I still like to have, like, one or two thoughts in my head um, just to go back to that, whether it's a feeling or um, usually a feeling in the swing that I like to get. So um, just just work on that for the week. And it changes so much from just day-to-day, week-to-week. Um, so just stick to one or two things for the week. Um, and, like, this week I'm working on something a little different to last week. <laughs> So it's just a little bit of variation, but um, still trying to create you know, it's the same ball flight and really good contact um, for just the consistency of the iron play and then just hitting the ball down the middle of the fairway. It's good to that'll set work. myself up. That'll work. That, that yeah, will that'll work. work. Fairways and greens. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you're in a really good place. <laughs> Well, obviously with three majors in the um, not-so-far-distant future. Talking about majors, I wanted to ask you, given that the men's US Open was just on last week, and I, I remember in 2014 when I was at Pinehurst and the men and the women were together, have there been talks about this rolling rolling out again in the in the near future? I haven't caught up with it, but you're, you're obviously closer to all the action over there. Like men and women playing together? Yes. Controversy. Um, not, not, not really that I've heard of um i know that you know the lpga and the pga tour is like working together but i don't really know exactly what that means um yeah i mean it would be great concept like a like the vic open it works great um and i think people would be you know a lot more interested you get both 
side of the games, the really powerful and, you know, like 300, 400-yard drives. But then <laughs> a lot of people, just normal amateurs, can, can relate more to our game um, because we just hit it at a similar distance. Um, and we probably hit our hybrid straighter than the guys, so... <laughs> Probably, yeah, I think it's really good. So not, not, not that I've heard of, like n- nothing mm. has been set into plan or anything. So when you were, you know, just heading towards turning pro and, you know, we used to watch you in Marvel and you were just making birdies for fun, do you feel like you've got that freedom or it's coming on the LPGA Tour that you can play with the same sort of freedom that you had as a, you know, dynamic world-beating world number one amateur and, and just, you know, make them for fun and make other people sort of look at you and go, wow? Yeah, um, I think that's really important to, like, keep reminding yourself why you, well, for me anyways, why I started to play, um, you know, was always, you know, having fun on the golf course and um, trying to play my best and hopefully, you know, and that comes down to a win. Um, but sometimes when you play week after week, it gets a little, like, repetitive. Um <coughs> And it just gets a little, you know, just just old, the same old stuff. But um, and and it can kind of get draining with the tour life when you're just constantly like go go go. Um, you know, after the week's over, you're like on a plane, and then you go to the next place, and it's just a brand new week again. Um, you don't really get that time off unless you actually take a week off. Um, but yeah, I mean, I try and I try and keep myself a little grounded and just you know just go out there and just hopefully see how many birdies I can get. So you're a pretty proud Aussie, and uh, you're coming around to a year removed from the Olympic experience that you had down in Rio. News just recently that it was going to go on to 2024 at least of the Olympic experience. Is that something you've got in your mind yeah. to, to play for? You know, in a, not only into Tokyo but wherever it might be the next time might be Paris or Los Angeles. Uh, seem to be the front runners. Is that something that inspires you, given your love for the green and gold? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, you know, it's still four years away, but for 2020, and it's definitely, you know, on my goals, like top of the list to make that team. Um, but I was, you know, like, I, it was such a big, um, like, surprise to me that I got to play the Olympics last year. So, I didn't get to go to the opening ceremony or the closing ceremony, but if I ever get a, you know, if I get a chance to play the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, then I am definitely going <laughs> to like the whole experience because I just felt like I just, you know, I didn't get the whole experience. It was too, um, it was too quick. Like I, I didn't get to experience too much of it. So that's my goal for 2020 if I get in. Well, we hope you're wearing the green and gold again. And mm. I'm, well, I think most of us, Randy, probably think you will be for quite some time. So um, what do you miss most about Australia just before we let you go? I didn't realise it had been that long since you'd sort of relocated over to Texas. Is there something you most miss about home? Just just uh, everything, just people, um, my friends, um just being home and just lay, just chilling out. Um, and 
Yeah, I don't know. Just, 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 you know, when you just go home and you just kind of You're at home. Out, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really I get miss. it. I believe yeah, a little piece of home might be coming and... over to visit you soon. <laughs> Who would that yeah, be? Yeah, I keep trying to go home, but whenever I have a two-week break, it's like in August and the weather's terrible in Melbourne in August. <laughs> so... It's not that appealing, like especially coming from the UK when the weather's probably going to be, you know, not as good, and um, just having four weeks of like bad weather is just kind of not really appealing. But um, but then Dallas would be like too hot, so I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, actually, when some of the caddies, like Tom Watson, who caddies for Soyan. Whenever, whenever he goes home, he was home um, like a couple of weeks ago, and he brought me like three tubs of Vegemite because <laughs> I have Vegemite on toast with eggs every day for breakfast. Um, so yeah, that was nice. Hey, good luck in Arkansas this week. Congratulations again on you know your tight fourth at uh, the major as uh, Hazy was talking about before, and uh, good luck in the next month and a half, Sue. Uh, you know you're obviously in you know pretty good place, and we can't wait to see what um, what you do uh, as the major championships kind of roll through the LPGA or the, the women's uh, the women's season. Good luck, and thanks for joining us on Inside the Ropes. Thank thanks, thanks Sue. guys. Thanks for having me. Good on you. Suo joining us. G'day, I'm my golf ambassador Jason Day. I'm really excited to be an ambassador for my golf, Australian Golf's National Junior Program, jointly run by Golf Australia and the PGA. My golf is every Aussie kid's first step on their golfing pathway. It's all about teaching children the basic skills of golf in a safe and healthy environment, and just as importantly, about the life skills that golf can teach you that distinguish our sport from the rest. Remember to visit mygolf.org.au for more information. Walking the fairways and the greens with the Aussie stars at home and away. Golf Australia's Inside the Ropes. There's a whole lot of other stuff we should talk about regarding um, what some Australians are doing overseas, particularly in the women's game in America, which we'll get to in a moment, Hazy, but... um, this is the, st- the national podcast that most of you are listening to. Don't forget that there, there are state versions, uh, of course, of Inside the Ropes right around Australia. We sort of focus on what's happening in the backyard uh, with golf in the various states around Australia. And go to golf.org.au forward slash Inside the Ropes or Google State's website if you want to have a listen to the state-specific podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Inside the Ropes, of course. We're going to have a little feature in a couple of weeks where I think you'll be back from a week off, Hazy, and Clates will be back while you're still over in um, over in Thailand. Thailand. Uh, it's painful to actually mention that. Mm. Um, so we're going to invite you to send through some questions. Um, as of now, actually, send through your questions to the Twitter handle at Inside the Robes. Anything you want Hazy and Clates to um, consider and respond to on the show in a fortnight's time, um, send them through. And the best six or seven questions that come through, uh, we'll put to yeah. the learned panelists inside the underscore ropes just yes in case. thank you very much i forget about the underscore every now and again <laughs> inside the underscore ropes with a little at sign in front of it um hannah was just spoken to sue yeah. and you know she's onward and upward and sounds like she's a game's in pretty good nick we've mentioned i don't think there's been too many pods of the five that we've done including this one where we haven't mentioned hannah green and it would be, be remiss of us not to mention her again this week she's posted another fantastic result 
over on the Symmetra tour. Yeah, spot on. Week on week, she just keeps building. No surprises with, mm. with Greeny. This is absolutely no surprise. But tied third, 10 under. So she's sitting fifth on the the, um, the rankings at the moment. And that's where she's just got to hold herself so she can then filter on to the, the big league. But, yeah, no, it's great work. It's it's wonderful to see for such a nice girl um, and, a, and a top player doing so well. And is it top five that gets you an LPG A tour card? Top 10, Top, is it? Yeah, top, top 10. 10. Yeah, and, okay. You know, I think the hallmark of a really... Pro's pro is you, you know you're up and about every week, and that's exactly what Hannah's doing. She's hasn't done anything special probably since she won Sarah Bay in, in April, but she's still making money and churning out results and climbing the rankings. And I I think that's just a great testament to who she's become as a player. Mm. Uh, three major tours, of course. We just spoken to Sue O about the Arkansas Championship. She'll be turning up alongside. There's Australians playing all over the place this week. Minji Lee, Sarah Jane Smith, Catherine Hulkirk, and Sarah Kemper all turning it over there. There's 10 Australians turning it up in the Travellers on the PGA Tour this week. 10. And at all different ends of the spectrum, you know, Dale Leishman, Ogilvy, we spoke to Jeff last week, and we now know that he's entering in a really big stretch for him as he tries to get himself back into automatic exemption and hang on to his PGA Tour card. It's a big sort of two and a bit month stretch for Ogilvy. And we neglected to mention Mark Leishman before in relation to the US Open. Great effort for him. Mention he, yeah, no, That's we missed out on him. The only Aussie to make the cut. And he, and he probably was... Uh, he's finished T27, I think, from memory, something like that. And he's uh, just had a really solid week, a couple of holes he'd like to take back. And a cold run for about half an hour with a putter uh, on the Sunday probably cost him any chance of a you know, really se- serious paycheck. But- well, he's five over in his last 25 holes. And prior to that, he'd got himself into the mix he had- midway through this. Like he's, he was... He was- like on the leaderboard halfway through that third round. So he was putting himself right in the frame and then it all just kind of stopped working. Yeah, the putter just sort of went mm. cold on him. So, But this week, back to a course where he's actually won previously. So I'd expect him with his good form and, and familiarity at that track to uh, to shine again. But really important week again, and we'll say this every time they do get a run, for Ryan Ruffles and Brett Coletta. Spot on. Uh, so Brett's actually took taken a break off the the McKenzie Tour in Canada last week to prepare better for this. He had a bit of a rush around the US Open and going to Jack's place when we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. I think uh, expect to see him go well again. And, and Ryan Ruffles, is, uh, if we exclude Jamaica, coming in in pretty decent form. So um, that was a tough call for him down in Montego Bay last week. Got just butchered by lightning and rain and stuff. So uh, hopefully he'll just uh, make that a blip on the radar and push on. Well, I know we're obsessed with hashtag golden era, but we shouldn't necessarily lose sight of the old blokes who are, there's a bunch of old timers who are turning it up down there as well. And they'll be very much, you know, they'll be keen to contend and, you know, do what they've been doing for a long time, pampling Percy, Chalmers and Appleby are all turning it up as well down there alongside Brett Druitt. So a lot of Australian, there's a huge Australian contingent Teen up on the PJ Tour this week. Well, in particular, I'd like to see Cam Percy do yeah, something special. I mean, not only is he a ripping bloke, but he's shown glimpses this year that his best is still right up there. And I think if he can, hopefully, we'll talk to him in a couple of weeks. And if he's got a back injury behind him and he can play his best golf, this is a course that can he actually he can make some cash on. I reckon. So yeah, spot on. I'd love to see that happen. Percy. And the BMW International over in the European Tour, five, six Australians. Uh, this is the tournament that. I think this one in Germany, right? This is a tournament. Yes. This is the one that about seven or eight years ago, I reckon it would have been now, that Willett beat Fraser in yeah. that three or four hole playoff. And no one had heard of, or well, I had certainly, it was like the coming out for Danny Willett. We've spoken to Huggy about you know where he's at at the moment with his game. But I remember sitting up late at night watching that, and that was uh, thrilling. It just kept it going. And like the guy who was sort of seemingly out of the hole kept making 
unbelievable shots to stay alive. And it yeah. just it went into about a fourth or fifth playoff hole. Yeah, that's yet. right. And fading white there yeah, on that course. Yeah. It was a, a monumental playoff. So, yeah, good one. Good tournament. And, you know, another deep field, uh, I think, after basically a week off for the major championship, they've basically come back together. So a really good field there. So where are we at with the British Amateur? Um, the British Amateur, we're recording this on Thursday morning, and yep. this is arguably the toughest tournament in Australian golfers, <laughs> golf riders' uh, <laughs> calendar to actually cover because you know they play from sun up to sundown. It's all overnight. It happens really quickly. Uh, as we speak here right now, we've got four alive in the top 32. We had uh, seven in the 64, eight made the match play section. A phenomenal achievement. Um, if we could get one or two to keep pushing through, maybe even all four, who knows, be one of the great achievements in, in recent Australian amateur golf history. And that's saying something because we've done so much in the last three or four years. So as we stand, Min Woo Lee, Zach Murray, Dylan Perry and Harrison Endicott, our highest ranked player, all punching along beautifully at Royal St. George's. This is right in your wheelhouse, these events, over in that neck of the woods too, isn't it? Yeah, no, I've been lucky enough to play at St. George's, yeah. actually, being an all-men's club. That was about three years ago at the, a, the British Amateur. You're a barrier buster. We're kicking the door even, down. Yeah, we exactly. even had to use the men's toilets because they didn't have women's toilets. Get that. Is that right? That is right. We had to use a men's toilet. The clubhouse does not have a female toilet in the, mm. in the That's a dis- What a disgrace it, that it is. is. Oh, yeah. it's, it's embarrassing. It's, but it's, course aside... Is awesome. L- yeah. Lumps and bumps, and it is a real test of your entire game. You've got to think, think so much around that that track. Um, I don't know how Norman had his shot his course record there in, in the British Open. It yeah. is unbelievably tough. And it was the girls did really well on their tour of the UK recently, and Montana Strauss in particular was mm. someone who sort of stood up, um, perhaps more than she has previously. So that was fantastic to see. A couple of questions last week came to me on Twitter about Becky Kay and Karis Davidson, who hadn't actually been in the main tournament, the Women's British Amateur Championship. And uh, at the time, they were actually heading back from being in Scotland, or Becky had been, to, to Korea, and they were teeing it up in the no lesser tournament than the Korean Open. Um, so, you know, just a phenomenal yeah. achievement to even get a start there for those two. Uh, they both played reasonably well early, but Karis made the cut. Becky sort of faded away in the second round. Huge kudos to Karis Davidson against just a, a field that a tournament that continues to produce the elite players in the world. Like half this field is just going to be yeah. superstars within five years. And she made the cut, did really well, shot a 73 in the third round, was sort of vaguely in the mix and had a, a disappointing final round, admittedly. But I, I couldn't be more proud of what she's done there from an Australian women's golf perspective to take that next step from amateur up into professional so easily. She's still amateur, but uh, against such a high-quality field, it's a great effort by Karis. And she's on the path very soon to be going to tour school over in Asia, isn't she, I yeah, believe? Yeah, she is. And I, I think, I mean, obviously they'd like to get onto the LPGA at some point, but I actually think she's also considering staying in our time zone, just like the men. So, you know, if she plays in Japan or plays in Korea or whatever, this is a really solid first step for her to take. Uh, going back to the men's game and staying in Asia, are you guys aware of what's going on over in China? Is there any, what, is there any like, bright light that's being shone on the kind of future of the Chinese tour? Is anybody... any? Got anything to sort of illuminate the rest of us regarding that? Well, I haven't heard a great deal about it, but I understand that they've broken away from, from the PGA, the PGA yeah, Tour, yeah. which to me just defies common sense. And when are we going to see, again, a, a worldwide tour where the seasonality comes into play and the entire world are wrapped up into, we, we all get to sell our best golf courses and, mm. and showcase our golf in, in our nations? It just seems that we're fracturing again. 
by, yeah. do, by doing this. I think we all want that, Joe. I couldn't agree with you more. But I think the politics of golf in China at the moment are just making it too hard to deal with for the US side of things, Andy, would be my belief. So, you know, whether it's, you know, when they're in the process of shutting down so many clubs there for political reasons, yep, yep. Yep. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sensitive area. So, you know, all we can do there is just we've got two or three young guys uh, in particular uh, for me as a good friend, Dean Lawson, who's over yep. there. Um, punching way above his weight, and, and Bryden McPherson is going really well there too. So, you know, I think if we can get a couple of good results there, it's probably the best we can hope there. So the, the bottom line is, for, as far as I can work out, they got they might have twelve tournaments over there this year. Um, four of them might be co-sanctioned with other tours. That's the projection. But these guys are playing, and you mentioned Brian McPherson. He's second on the order of merit over there. After I think only there's only been a handful of events, maybe even just one played so far. Um, so he's had a good early start there. But you might win that order of merit, and at the end of it, have no idea what um, status it gets you anywhere else, or what doors get opened as a result of winning that. So they're massively up mm. in the air over there. But it just underlines that there are, and there's a heap of Australians up there, not just Dan Lawson and Brian McPherson. There's Australians up there all over the place playing with the hope that if they have a result that actually might mean something for them other than just you know pocketing some money from that particular event. And what I know in speaking to Dean, like he's actually been able to plot a path through a few Asian tour events and back onto the Australian tour when it's practical and and he's actually been able to mishmash together a good schedule mm. uh, and again staying in our time zone which is perfect and while we're at this, kudos again to the Australian PGA Tour this week for announcing the New Zealand Open has been co-sanctioned Massive. by the Asian Tour. So not only is it a great tournament and a great chance for our, our young guys to show their wares again on a world stage, but another chance to get a ticket onto a big tour. And, you know, full kudos to the PGA of Australia for, for uh, making that happen. Yeah, he, he couldn't agree with you more. Last one before we uh, wrap it up. Um, the PGA Tour announces this week uh, a more open, transparent drug policy. They now being an Olympic sport, and with the golf being extended at the Olympics, you know, by another Olympiad, uh, they must be water compliant, um, and they are going to be. There's been fair to say there's probably been mixed uh, reaction to this amongst the golfing fraternity that you know performance enhancing drugs obviously would be. Um, We'd, we'd all be notified of that, but now drugs of dependence are also going to be uh, exposed if people who are breaching the drug code regarding that. If you want to be in the Olympic Games, you know, and you want to be, you know, part of the big show, if you still consider it the big show, then you, these are the things that you're just going to have to, you know, tread the line on, aren't you? Uh, to me, this is um, long, long, long overdue. Mm. Um, if we've got nothing to hide, what's the problem? And if we, you know, if we have got something to hide and be worried about it collectively as a sport, well, let's let's address it. Mm. You know, the US tour has been, I would say, you know, had its head in the sand on this issue for for a long time publicly. I don't think they've failed to address any issue behind closed doors. But as a public entertainment and a form of entertainment, I think you're entitled to know when players are missing for six months for something other than a sore thumb. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't cast any aspersions on anyone in particular. But clearly, there's been some issues, and and speculation's no good for anyone. Facts mm. are the key to here. And, you know, if we want to play in Olympics, which we do, let's get fair income. So, well done. Glad they made the move, even if it was a bit overdue. Agree? Uh, totally agree, yep. Address the issue. Walking the fairways and the greens with the Aussie stars at home and away. Golf Australia's Inside the Ropes. Time to talk golf in the backyard of Victoria, of course, and we're very lucky yet again to have the CEO of Golf Victoria, Simon Brookhouse, in the studio here at Inside the Ropes. Hello, Simon. 
Hello, everyone. How are we? Going all right. You look. You can to say something there. Oh, Hazy. Our first return guest, Andy. Yeah, well, this, by popular uh, demand, he's back. <laughs> now it's it's actually timely that you're here because this is the second time we've spent time with Joe Charlton, um, Simon, who is allegedly an employee of Golf Victoria. Couple of questions there. Is she truly an employee of Golf Victoria? What does she do, and does she do it well? I do like the term allegedly. Uh, it's uh, it's something that springs to mind when we talk about Joe. She seems to spend more time in here than in, in the Monte Peninsula. Uh, but the truth is, no. Joe is a, a very valuable employee of Golf Victoria, and is part of our regional development officer program. Joe looks after the Monte Peninsula area for us, and and really is down there to help grow the game and and help clubs in their quest to become better. Uh, one of the issues, obviously, for us is in trying to grow the game, get more people interested in. And that's primarily Joe's role. Is, this is a question to both of you and to you too, Hazy. Is there, I'm not going to say it's anything's easy because you're trying to get things better and there's, there's a, an established kind of benchmark for the quality of golf down in that region, but we talk a lot about regions and um, their ability to attract golfers. It would be, I venture to suggest, one of the top two or three golfing destinations from a region perspective in Australia now, the Mornington Peninsula. Would that be a fair call? Yeah, I'm very fortunate. I think the statistics in our last annual report showed some growth, which was terrific, mm. um, both from a membership point of view, but I think also we always get the, the tourism traffic down there. So on the whole, the clubs are, are very healthy, um, but... There are other ways that we can help support them in terms of our participation programs or other club support programs like governance and you name it. And that's what we're there for, just to really uh, help help them and be a resource that historically has never been there so for them get, from a you, Golf Victoria point cool, of view. It's awesome. When you get a club like a golf course like um, St Andrews Beach, which, which I'm happy to say I think is one of the great courses in Australia, not just in Victoria, that's set up as a private concern and it doesn't work and then it nearly goes belly up and it's saved what what is it easy to tell us what role golf victoria can play in helping a course get back on its feet is that what you do is that part of um your kind of purvey or not i personally probably haven't had that experience firsthand um but i know that Certainly with our government relations um, officer or manager, I should say, Fiona Telford, she's really um, instrumental in in that, in Mm. terms of that government relations and getting um, the support from local councils, if that's so fit. Um, But yeah, no, it's a very varied role. We wear many different hats. The makeup of every club is very different. So how we tackle each club and support each club, um, there's no really one fast answer for you, Andy. So Brookie, when you get a club like that, and you know, it's it's a great piece of golfing architecture and it would would have been a travesty had it been the doors been closed and never been reopened um do do you take does golf victoria take that on board that this is too good an asset to let disappear and and if there's a way we can help a club like that a course like that we we do yeah look absolutely andy i think one of the things that um we need to be really cognizant of is that once you lose your playing field at any sport it's very difficult to get it back uh, and I often use the the analogy around squash courts and not to denigrate squash in any way, but growing up, there was a squash court on every street corner. It was, yeah. And now you really struggle to find one because they got sold off for prime real estate. And we certainly don't want that to be an issue for golf. We want to make sure that we protect the playing field. And, and to do that, you've got to make the actual club and the infrastructure and the people there around it stronger. As soon as we start um, closing golf calls and, and losing golf holes, they're very difficult to get back. So we work quite closely with the state government and in the next fortnight you'll see a discussion paper around planning and golf being released. Uh, it's a task force set up 
uh, primarily to the work we've done with the state government to ensure that we're looking beyond the next five years, we're looking at the next 50 years possibly mm. where golf's going to be around population growth, where courses are needed, where they may be an overpopulation or an oversupply. But the truth is that demand's always going to grow. That's our objection, objective. Sorry, we, we want demand in the game to grow, which means we're still going to need more courses in the future. More courses. Yep. Don't you think we should make a Huntingdale or something like that 8,500 yards? <laughs> that was a bit facetious, Simon. I'm sorry. It was, it, it, but it goes to your point. Like, we've got to make the most of what we have because the land is scarce, isn't it? And, you know, we, we, it, even if we could find the perfect property on rolling hills, maybe down on the Gippsland coast, for example, it's not just automatically a golf course these days. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, the the, the land that we have is, is many competition, many areas of competition wanting that land, whether it be wetlands, parklands, football grounds or whatever it is. So we have to fight for our survival as, as an industry and, and our golf courses are really, really important. And uh, I mean, I know you touched on facetiously the length of courses and I think we've talked about this before and the changing dynamic of what people want from golf. Um, and sometimes it's important to understand that we need golf courses within our current golf courses that might be shorter for, for, for play mm-hmm. to extend people's play. And there's a necessity, I think, that we might need some shorter courses, whether it be six-hole, par three courses, mm. to get people into the game. We've got a lot of great public facilities in Victoria that are probably underutilised, uh, and maybe we can work with local governments to, to change the dynamic of what is a traditional 18-hole golf course to to make it a little bit varied and it might be 12 really good traditional holes and six par threes to entice new entrants into the game. I'm going to ask you um, without any notice about the home of golf. Very tough what... being interviewed by your staff. <laughs> <laughs> because you, t- you just talked about par three courses, shorter courses and from what I've been hearing, um, that's a potential plan with the home of golf. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about that? Look, I think it's important that we consider the the home of golf is more about bringing the golfing bodies in the country together and, and I'm reluctant to just necessarily call it the home of golf. It's it's an ideal that we bring the, the high performance and the game development people of Golf Australia, the PGA and particularly ourselves being the, given the state government's $10 million commitment to this project to Victoria. And what that means is, is, is trying to encourage some changes to get people into the game and if that means redeveloping a golf course to to have something that's a bit more modern whether it be a large Himalaya putting green whether Mm. it be um, some ex-golf time simulators within the facility um, but also uh, something that's easy for people to come and play and that might be par three it might be par three and short par fours we don't necessarily know the answer but I think until we start trying things that the areas that we struggle in are juniors into the game and particularly women into the game mm. who tend to be a little bit intimidated by that walking onto the 18-hole mm. golf course. Absolutely. Having only had lessons or only been on the driving range. So if we can make it easier for them and allow them to come out and play a short course and enjoy themselves and have a laugh, I think the game's better for it. Mm-hmm. Let's stick on this politics stuff, mate. I know you love your politics. <laughs> and we saw, no doubt, Stephen Pitt's article last week about one golf and, and Victoria's arguably the greatest ally of Golf Australia in terms of a... It's probably going a bit harshly against other states, but in terms of actually making a progressive push towards the future of golf. Uh, look, Mark, I've got no doubt that the the one golf model that's proposed is the way the sport should be going. I think I've said that almost from the day I came into the role. We are a fragmented sport, unfortunately, and, and have so many competing interests for either the growth of the game or the money that is in the game, and it's a real challenge for us to grow. Um 
I often sit back and think, well, and, and I've heard Stephen say this as well, is if we were starting now, what would we do? What would we mm. set up? Mm. And it certainly wouldn't be the structure we've got now. Um, there are efficiencies that can absolutely be gained by having a national workforce grow in the game. The skill sets that are in each state, whether it be Victoria, Queensland, South Australia, can be shared across the country. We're better for it. So the, the one thing about One Golf is that people have to understand that it's about being more efficient and putting more resource where it should be put in the likes of Joe. Joe mentioned before that our regional development program, we've got six around Victoria, is quite different to some of the other states, but they are a little bit of a jack of all trades. And I think in the perfect world, we'd redeploy people within the industry to some be a club support function, so more of a skill set around helping the financial performance and maybe the marketing of a club. And the other side of the coin is this development, getting people into the game, touching bases with schools and young people and working them together with clubs. Mm. That's the great benefit of bringing everyone together and creating more efficiency and, and a better financial pot of money to be invested in the sport. It's not just about mm. getting together and, and singing Kumbaya and all being happy. It's about actually growing the game, and that's the really important issue. I think that's unbelievably Important, you know, one, there's so many elements in that, but to 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 have a junior program that can compete alongside you know, Milo Cricket and Oz Kick and is um, funded well enough to have a presence, you know, at schools and after school and you know on weekends. I think that if you can get to a point around Australia where that is established and is as active and as well-known as some of the other sports have got attracting seven, eight, nine-year-olds to the game, then that's arguably about as important as anything else in front of golf at the moment because we can – there is a fear that, you know, generation – we might be skipping a generation here and if you skip it, then it's hard to get it – it's hard to get back, you know. So I think that's a really, really important challenge to be met. Oh, there's no doubt. And I think that, you know, MyGolf, the MyGolf program we have is a fantastic program. Mm, absolutely. But it doesn't necessarily have the traction nationally because of this sort of segregation amongst the golfing industry. And we have to, the PGA and Golf Australia have done a really good thing in coming together to drive this, but we've got to influence all the teaching pros out there, all the community instructors and all our state bodies to embrace it. And if, if my golf becomes the stepping stone for being the next golfer, mm. And you go from one school to another, like you do with an Oz kick. You just, the kid next door knows you do Oz mm. kick and knows you do my golf, and that's ultimately where we want to get to. And Hazy, we want to find the next Joe Charlton, and we want to find the next Zach Murray. And I, we don't know if there's there's timeline issues here in terms of reporting what's happening over in the UK, but we do have a young Victorian who's uh, going pretty deep into the British amateur. Yeah, we do. We had a couple make the match play phase. Dave Michaluzzi. Um, it's, a, it's a slightly unique system the RNA have uh, put up here, but uh, he made the match play phase without being in the top 64, but unfortunately was rolled in the first round. But uh, the state captain, the victorious state captain, is, is going along beautifully, Simon, and you know it's good reward for him. He's shown glimpses, hasn't he, over the past few weeks that he's got something special coming, and let's hope it happens this week. Look, I think Zach, uh, I mean, to, to get him through, he, he won his round of 32, I think it was this morning, and, and he has a great opportunity to, to go all the way. His game's coming together. I think there'd be no hiding by the fact, if you talk to Zach, that he probably struggled a bit in the Interstate Series, but he was thrust into that number one position for us and, and was admirable in every match, but just probably couldn't get over the line, the close ones. But he uh, has been working his golf since then, and He's a he's a rare talent, and he's a great young young fellow, and he's a great example mm. of someone who's come from country Victoria, mm. 
um, and been identified by talent ID programs that we have in place. And, and I really believe that, you know, he and amongst another group of six or seven of these young boys that we've got now, or young men, um, will take the professional world by storm. Well, let's hope we can keep finding them and keep giving them a game that, you know, is open to them and uh, able to develop the talents that they've clearly got. I mean, it's that's what we're all about here, isn't it? One so, more on yep. that front, Andy. We, yep. we mentioned earlier in the in the national show about um, Montana Strauss, Simon, who, who perhaps wasn't always on the talent pathway that everyone else was on, uh, even, you know, in Joe's era. Of, I'm not saying your ear is over, Joe, but uh, um, it's a game for life, Hazy. Yeah, she uh, she's really come on in leaps and bounds on this particular trip to the UK too. Absolutely, look, Montana actually took some time out of the game, um, and and I think that was probably really good for her. She mm. she made a decision that uh, she had a few other priorities, competing priorities, and took some time out of golf, but's come back absolutely better than ever, and and really dedicated to to pursuing this career in golf and. I think it's a good example of you. You know, if you if you're not quite right, it is a tough game. So there, there's no no one would hold, hold it against you to take some time out of the game and then come back mm. into it. And Montana has done that, and uh, she's she's getting the rewards because of it. She's practicing really hard, and I think she's probably a better golfer now than she was three or four years ago. Look forward to hearing from you probably next week or the week after about the strategic report. I reckon there's going to be some stuff in that that all golf lovers in Victoria would be really keen to um, know more about, Simon. So as soon as there's some details you can share with us, we look forward to hearing from you about that. Absolutely. Always happy to be here. Simon Brookhouse, how's your game coming together, by the way? Is it all right? Not so well, Andy. You've, <laughs> you've played golf with me. You no, know, you're I, a good partner. I, I, you can, you can shoot. Partner. You can... We can all hit it bad, but when you hit it good, you hit it all right. And you're off your banditry, you're a bandit handicap. You're a very, very good <laughs> member of a team. Well, we do control the handicaps. <laughs> there you go. Simon Brookhouse, the CEO of Golf Victoria, joining us uh, inside the ropes. Uh, Joe, good to see you again. We'll Thanks, see you next time. Andy. Hazy, all the best, my friend. Thanks, Andy. And just double check back on the Golf Victoria website for the previous editions one through four, this being, of course, number five. And there's been some great episodes already on the Victorian website. And. Uh, Oh, yeah, Mike Clayton last, last week, week was exemplary. Yep. Um, hopefully we'll be back on in the next few weeks and uh, get around him and ask him a few questions on Twitter at Inside the Underscore Ropes. Absolutely. Uh, and check everything about this podcast at the Golf Victoria website. And feel free to listen to his top five hidden gems in Victoria, which he revealed to us last week. And if you disagree with him, by all means, challenge him oh, on slate Twitter. Him. Just really <laughs> ripping to him on Twitter. Uh, that's it for this week. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thanks for tuning in.